I, I, I got a kick last night out of when he said something, it's not a quote, but something to the effect that if we can follow this, that there'll be less uh, fights around the house between husband and wife about finances. And Emily leans over to me and says, boy, I hope that's true. <laughs> So we're going to see if it works, Steve. You're under, you're under a test here. Uh, it's all your responsibility. Uh, but we are so glad that he is back with us tonight, Steve. <laughs> Thank you, David. Okay, you know, I could lie to you about this, but I'm not going to. Let me just tell you what happened. About five minutes ago, I got this call from David. I'm driving up the road here. I stopped down there at the Exxon station, ate a banana about five minutes ago. That's how relaxed I was. And I'm driving down the road, and David says, hey, Steve, where are you at? I said, about a half mile from Bill and David. Okay, I'll see you in a minute. Okay, bye. And I'm driving along, and I'm thinking, I wonder why he called me. I had it in my head. <laughs> I had it in my head that we were starting at 7 o'clock tonight. I thought I was early. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, that's all I know to tell you. <laughs> We've done 260 seminars. I've never been late before. But I tell you what, I've learned one thing doing these things. You might as well quit getting embarrassed about stuff. If you're going to do seminars, you've got to get used to it. I have done every dumb thing that you can imagine. I've been known to go into the restroom during a break with my microphone turned on. I've done everything, <laughs> everything dumb that you can dream up. I've probably done it about a half a dozen times. So I apologize for being late. Listen, this evening we're going to kick off here real quickly, and we're going to talk a little bit about some things that have been, for some of us, possibly some of the most painful areas of our lives. We're going to talk a little bit about money. We're going to talk a little bit about the debt that we, a lot of us deal with. Yesterday, I made the point that about 70-plus percent of us are struggling financially. And for most of us, that means we've got a lot of debt. In a lot of cases, it's more than we can handle. And tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I, I, you know, you, I, I don't know about y'all, but I... I know that, that I grew up over in East Tennessee where the good old boys love their good old cars. And I can recall when I was a kid, you know, the first thing every guy wanted was a car. This old boy back when I was, back when I was a young guy bought himself a brand new two-seat Mercedes. This thing, was, <clears throat> this thing was, cost more than twice what my first house cost. He was tooling down a Tennessee back road making about 60 miles an hour. Trouble is, he was in a 50-mile-an-hour zone when he passed the trooper. <laughs> Goes right past the trooper. The trooper thinks, oh, great, I've got 15 minutes left on my shift. I don't want to mess with this guy. I'll pull him over. I'm going to give him a break and let him go. So the trooper takes out after this fellow. Well, this rocket scientist in his car looks up in the rearview mirror. He sees the trooper. But instead of pulling over like he's supposed to, he punches the car. He's up to 70. He gets up to 80. He finally gets up to about 90 miles an hour. And finally, this brain burp of his ends, and he realizes, hey, I'm in a lot of trouble here. This is not the way you do with Tennessee State Troopers. I better pull over and get this thing over with. So he pulls off the side of the road. Trooper pulls in behind him. Trooper gets out of his car, walks up to this fellow's window, looks inside and says, hey, sport, you know, a minute ago, you passed me at 60 miles an hour. I was going to give you a warning, but partner, you have run me up to 90 miles an hour. You'd better have a pretty good explanation for this. Guy looked at him, he said, officer, he said, I am so sorry. And I'm embarrassed. But he said, the truth of the matter is, it was only about a week ago when another Tennessee State Trooper ran off with my wife. You're ahead of me. 
And I was just scared that you were the one bringing her back. (laughs) Now, the moral of that story is simply this. Folks, there are some things in this world, if you're going to deal with them, you've got to understand them. We all need to, and don't, ladies, don't get mad at me. That's not a sexist joke. That was just, we're just having some fun here. But we have to understand things that we deal with. And, and of course, here in Tennessee, we have to understand the, the Tennessee State Troopers. All of us that handle money need to understand how money works. And I'm not suggesting that we need to be economists or that we have to be CPAs. But we've really got to learn to get smart on this stuff. Because if we don't, if we don't begin to learn how the money industry works in this country and, that, and, and internationally these days, then we will spend the rest of our lives at the end of every month sitting at home, feeling dumb and stupid, wondering what happened to my money. We have got to begin to take control of this. This is the session where we're going to talk a little bit about dealing with this and overcoming the structure and the pain that, we, that a lot of us have. This is the session that I call the Steve Diggs Debt Amputation Station because we're going to talk about doing things differently in here tonight. My goal these days is not what it used to be. My goal these days when I buy stuff is to buy it on a two-plan system. Number one, I don't want to ever pay any interest ever, zero interest. And number two, I don't want to ever have any payments. Now the question is, how do you accomplish that goal? And the answer is real simple. We're going to start paying cash. We're going to start changing the way we do business as Christians and as Christian families. Um, Seriously, I'll tell you what, before we do anything more, if you'll take your hands and put them underneath your legs, kind of like this, kind of, if you'll do that, just kind of put your hands underneath your legs, kind of like that, and lift your feet, I don't know, maybe an inch and a half, maybe two inches up off the floor. Hopefully that way I won't be stepping on anybody's toes in here too much tonight. <laughs> because what I have to share with you here tonight, honestly, is the kind of thing that has mowed my own toes off at about the ankles a thousand times over. And I, I said this yesterday, I know that we may have a few people with us this evening that were not with us last night, so let me repeat this. And also, by the way, this is what I call the 20-minute dribble. On Monday nights, there are folks that are rushing to try to get kids together and get food down, and we'll be coming in for a while here, and that's perfectly fine. Those of you who made the superhuman effort to get through the traffic and be here on time, even though I wasn't, thank you for doing that. But for those of you that may not have been here yesterday, I want to repeat something. I am not teaching from a position of strength. I am a broken, sinful man that has been saved only by God's grace. And I am not up here pretending to have all the answers to anything, certainly not even the area that I'm teaching on. I do have some answers, and I have studied, and I have worked, and I can tell you truthfully that for the most part, I have practiced what I preach for at least 25 years. But there have been some glaring exceptions to that. And honestly, I am not up here to make anybody feel any worse. There are some of you in here tonight that are in a lot of pain. I know that. I wish, I wish I'd brought it with me. I got an email this afternoon from a preacher in a southern state. That's what I'll tell you on it. And the level of financial pain that he's in. And you think, well, preachers must not have problems. Hey, preachers are people too. And this man was in some, he's a friend of mine, and he is in some terrible pain. There are some of you sitting here tonight that are really hurting I understand how you feel. And with all the levity aside and all the, all the other stuff aside, I'm only here tonight to try to give us some pathways out of the pain. I'm not here to make people that are already beat up and hurt feel worse. So we're going to work on this thing a little bit together here. I'll tell you, uh, last night, yesterday, I mentioned something that I want to kind of revisit this evening. I said yesterday that people that are in debt usually are in debt 
believing three things that are wrong. Number one, they think that they're all alone. And over and over and over again, I've said you're not alone. You're with about 70 plus percent of the people. Number two, people that are in debt feel hopeless. Last night I showed you a plan, and I promise you it really works, that will get virtually anybody out of debt, not counting their home, in a one to four year period. But the third thing that people that are in debt consistently seem to believe that is a lie from the pit. They feel like they're stupid. They feel dumb. It's interesting to me how often when I get into a conversation, and I said this yesterday, with somebody that's struggling, at some point they'll just sort of stop the conversation, and they go, they go almost catatonic. It's, a, it's an interesting sight. I've seen this so many times. And they'll just sort of sit there kind of dumbfounded for a moment, and then the next thing out of their mouth is usually something like, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe how stupid I am. I can't believe how dumb I am. Listen, folks, being dumb and being in debt are two radically different things. Hey, here's the news. It's possible to be totally out of debt and still be a real dumb person. <laughs> and the converse of that is true, too. It's possible to be deeply in debt and not be dumb at all. Now, granted, we get into debt because of dumb decisions that we've made, but making some dumb decisions doesn't mean that we're a dumb person any more than me flying in an airplane makes me an airplane. We all make some dumb decisions. But if we believe this lie from the pit that says we're stupid, we're, in, we're, you know, we're, we're invalid, we're incapable, we can't, we can't do the normal things other people do, then we are going to live that lie. And the devil is going to beat us. Being dumb and being in debt are not the same thing. Let me just share with you two or three real quick stories of people whom I've known and that I've worked with who have been in some terrible debt, uh, debt pits, terrible debt bondage, terrible money troubles. Yet these are some of the most intelligent people that I've ever worked with. First person is a guy named Philip. Philip and I have been friends for 20-something years. Some years ago, he called me one day and he said, Steve, there are a group of us that are about to start a new national bank. Would you like to be one of the founders? And I did sort of a quick due diligence over the next week or two and got back with them and said, no, thanks, you guys go ahead and do it. They did, but I did become an early stockholder in that bank. One day, shortly after we'd opened, I was in the bank on some other business. Philip was the president of the bank. He saw me, he said, Steve, I need to talk to you. So I walked in and sat down in his office. And Philip said, Steve, I'm afraid we're gonna have to let go of Tom. I said, what are you talking about? And you see, Tom was our senior vice president. He was a banker's banker, wonderful guy. I said, what do you mean, let go of Tom? He said, Steve, Tom has gotten himself into some debt problems and he's not paying his own bills. And he said, I can't have a senior vice president here at the bank that doesn't pay his own bills. And again, Tom wasn't dumb, but Tom was in a lot of debt. Second story is about a fellow named Harold. This man ran a company that employed almost 500 people. They made stuff that you see at Sam's Wholesale Stores, Costco's, Walmart's, all around the country. Uh, I, I remember Harold was a devout Christian. He was on the board of directors of one of our better known Christian universities. Harold had his own television program on the local cable channel. He would come on every week. He would teach people about Jesus. He probably baptized more people into Jesus in a year's time than a lot of us will in a lifetime. But I can remember sitting with Harold on a number of occasions, but one day in particular, I recall, I was in his office and he literally put his head in his hands and he said, Steve, I don't know what we're gonna do. What had happened, he had tried to grow that business with too much borrowed money. And when things slowed down, he couldn't meet the payments. And again, it wasn't because Harold was dumb, it was just because Harold had gotten himself into too much debt. It eventually almost broke the business, it broke his health, but it wasn't a reflection of intelligence. Last story is a story about a fellow named Bob. Bob had helped to run two of America's largest book publishers when he decided to start his own book publishing business. 
and people throughout the industry were talking about it. They expected big things from Bob. I mean, Bob knew all the famous authors. I remember he used to vacation with James Dobson. Uh, Bob understood the marketing. He understood the distribution, all the stuff about publishing. But I remember sitting with Bob in his office in the springtime of the year, a few years, about three or four years after they'd opened. And he told me, and this is not very delicate. He said, Steve, we're in a lot of trouble. He said, I've been in meetings all morning long with my bank. And he said, I'm humiliated. I feel like they've had me running up and down Main Street in one of those hospital gowns that's wide open in the back. And he said, I'm scared and I don't know what's going to happen. And sure enough, it wasn't more than a few weeks later that, he'd been shut, he, that, he, that he was shut down. The business closed. And again, it wasn't because Bob was dumb. It was because Bob had allowed himself to get into too much debt. Listen, folks, if you're in debt tonight, it's not a reflection of intelligence. It's a reflection of knowledge and a reflection of some poor decisions that we've made. We can overcome these things. People that go through debt usually go through about seven stages. And you're going to notice that the first of these five stages or the first five stages, I should say, sort of parallel what they tell us about people who go through grief, very similar. People that are in debt, the first stage they usually go through is the stage of denial. This is when the person knows something is wrong. This is when they know that, you know, they're not sleeping too well at night, they're fussing with their spouse, but it's before they're really ready to say, hey, I've got some big league, major level debt problems. This is before they're really ready to admit that. But this stage of denial usually gives way to the stage of anger. This is when the person starts to realize, hey, I've got some big-time debt problems. But it's before the person's ready to take responsibility. It's when that person starts to blame other people. They start to blame the bank. They start to blame the credit card company. This is when husbands blame their wives for spending too much money. This is when wives blame their husbands for not earning enough money. This is a very, very bad time. As a matter of fact, let me just do something here. I'm going to turn the seminar off again. <laughs> this is a free sidebar, but let me just say something sort of related to this point because I think this is important. Brothers and sisters, today we live in the United States of victimology. Everybody in this country, it seems today, wants to be a victim. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're at, it's everywhere. I mean, you go into McDonald's and you pour hot coffee in your lap and somehow it's their fault. You go into the Burger King and you come out looking like a whopper. <laughs> and it's their fault. And sure enough, there's usually some lawyer somewhere that'll help you shake somebody down to get some money. But folks, listen to me. The difference between losers and winners is far less circumstantial than losers usually are prepared to admit. A loser is a person who sits over here in a pity puddle, feels sorry for himself and says, yeah, I've been ripped off, cheated, lied to, abused, mistreated, prejudiced against, misused, and all that stuff. And I'm just going to sit here, here till somebody makes it right. That is essentially the way a loser thinks. A winner says, yep, I've been ripped off, cheated, lied to, abused, prejudiced against, misused, all those same things. But you know something? I'm not going to let somebody else drive my life. With the help of God today, I'm going to draw a bead on the wall down there to where I think God means for me to go. And with the gray matter that he's put between my ears, I'm going to start taking one step after another going in that direction. Folks, that's the difference between losers and winners. In this anger stage, panders to the loser mentality that we do not need to be playing to as Christians. We need to understand that we've got a holy God, a strong God that can get us through some awfully deep water. Number three, third stage of, of debt is the stage of depression. And I would argue that this is the most de demonically inspired of all seven stages. This is when really bad stuff happens. This is when people, this is when, when, when relationships fall apart. 
This is when marriages break up. This is when people sometimes do things they cannot undo. I was doing this seminar at the Bright Angel Church of Christ out in Las Vegas a while back. Some of you know Dr. Thomas Trimble. He, he was the um, chairman of the Board of Regents at Pepperdine. He's one of the elders there. Great guy, great church. But there was a fellow that came up to me after this session in the seminar. And he said, Steve, what you just said up there is true in spades. He said, I'm in law enforcement here in Las Vegas. And he said, I can tell you for sure that this happens all the time. People from all over America who have lost everything will scrounge two or $300 together. They'll buy themselves a cheap internet ticket. They'll fly out here to Las Vegas. They think that they're going to gamble their way back to prosperity. But he says that never happens, of course. But he says then when they lose their last dime, depression sets in. That's when they do something really dumb, like they try to cheat the house, and I have to put them in jail. He was the kind of guy who had, had to deal with it when they jumped out of these high-rise hotel rooms. Folks, this stage of depression is a demonically inspired, dangerous place to be. Depression, though, usually gives way to the stage of bargaining. This is when the person thinks that they're making headway. But in fact, they really aren't. I call this the stage of false health. This is when the person tells themselves that they're doing something worthwhile, but they're not really making any headway. This is when people are sitting up in the middle of the night watching those idiot infomercials that I mentioned yesterday. Listen, let me just tell you something. I think I know why they run infomercials in the middle of the night. It's because they know when we're in debt, we can't sleep. And we're up there changing channels all night. And listen. I, like I told you yesterday, had presented this message between live audiences and in broadcast situations to at this point over two million people. I can tell you emphatically that I have never had one person come up from an audience or send me an email and tell me, hey Steve, I'm a millionaire today because of the books and tapes I bought from this guy at three o'clock in the morning from the TV set who said I could flip some real estate or I could get into some commodities trading scheme and make a lot of money. Now maybe it happens, but I haven't run into it. I'm telling you, these get-rich-quick schemes are not the answer. The answer to debt is to understand that we got into it slowly, we've got to get a plan, we've got to work the plan and get out of it as quickly as possible, but it's not going to happen overnight. The fifth stage, though, this is when health really does begin to return. This is when the person starts to say some really productive things to himself. He starts to say, yes, I'm in debt, and I'm in debt because of some dumb things that I've done. But me making some dumb mistakes does not mean that I'm a dumb person. And with the help of God, I am going to, like I said a moment ago, draw that bead on the wall, see where God means for me to go, and I'm going to get serious about it. This is when the person determines to develop the strategies, the, 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 the disciplines, the attitudes that they've got to have to get through this problem. And then the really cool thing about it is that leads into the stage of resurrection. This is when the person says, listen, I don't care how much pain I go through for the next one, two, three, four years. I'm going to do this thing. And I'm going to work the plan. I'm going to follow that three-point mantra. I'm going to sell. I'm going to cut. I'm going to work like mad. And we are going to change the paradigm of our lives. And the really cool thing about this stage of resurrection, when done correctly, I want to take my shoes off before I do this, when done correctly, it doesn't leave us just on level ground, but it brings us out on higher ground to the stage of rebirth. You see, what we do is we continue to use the same strategies, skills, and disciplines of selling, cutting, and working, but now we're out of debt and we can catapult ourselves to levels of financial capability and ability that most of our friends don't even believe is possible right now. This is the way we can change paradigms and lifestyles and even family trees in ways that a lot of us don't even believe are possible at this point. Now, yesterday I mentioned this, and I told you that tonight I wanted to come back and revisit this question. The question, is it wrong to borrow money? 
And the reason I do this is because today, as you know, there are two, and I mentioned this yesterday, two broadly divergent viewpoints on borrowing money among Christian people. We hear the name it and claim it guys on the radio. They say, just borrow anything you want to borrow, grow your kingdom. God wants you all to be rich. And by the way, be sure to send me money every month. That's the message. Now, folks, let me just tell you something. Christians, listen, this is a heresy that even Christians can fall into if we're not careful because the guys that sell this stuff on the TV set sound pretty good. But I'm telling you, you take that sort, same message to any third world Christian community and they will laugh you to scorn. You come, into, you come into the Sudan and tell them that God expects them to all be financially wealthy and they know better. It, this, is, this, is, this is a heresy that will only work in America. I disagree with this. Over here, though, on the other side, we've got another group of people who are telling Christians that all borrowing is sinful. Sometimes they'll actually go over here to, to the book of Romans where Paul said to owe no man anything except to love one another. And they'll say, see, that's where Paul said that it's wrong to borrow money. Folks, if you study the scriptures here, that's not even what Paul's talking about. What Paul is really telling the Christians here, he's saying to be honorable, to pay your debts, and specifically here he's talking about taxes, to pay your taxes on a timely basis. Stan, I don't know if you've got a car loan or not right now, but I would tell you that if you do have a car loan, and if you've made your August payment, then based on what Paul here is saying, you owe no man anything, nor will you owe anybody anything, until the September payment comes around. You see, that's more the heart and soul of what Paul's talking about. And the reason I get so uppity about this is because, frankly, it makes me a little angry when I hear these things coming off from people. And to me, it really boils down to a question of consistency. I'll tell you what. Pretend that tonight I'd come in here, and, and tonight we're not talking about money, okay? Let's pretend that I'd come in here to talk to everybody about chaste, moral living, okay? And I make the case that before a young couple gets married, that premarital sex is wrong, and that before you're married, you should remain chaste and celibate, okay? Once we are married, we remain monogamous, and that fornication is a sin. But then I'm walking out the back door, and David comes up to me tonight, and David says, hey, Steve, what kind of business are you in down there, down there in Nashville? And David, I reach in my pocket and pull out my business card and give it to you, and I say, David, I've got a pornographic website. I think you'd really like it. Check it out. Would anybody in here have a problem with that? You're supposed to be doing this about now. I hope you would. <laughs> I hope you'd show me out the back door for the last time. Why? Because that would be a very inconsistent lifestyle, right? Well, it may not be as dramatic, but I think it's exactly the same thing. When somebody like me gets up in front of godly people like you, and I tell you that you can't borrow money, when at the same moment, I've got a checking account down there at the bank, or a savings account, or a CD. Because remember, the bank does not want my money to protect my money. The bank wants my money so it can lend my money back out to borrowers. They're going to loan up to $85 out of every $100 that I put into that account back out to borrowers. So somebody somewhere ought to ask the question, how can I tell you that it's sinful to borrow when I'm the very guy who is funding the system? D do you see the disconnect in that? Listen, what I'd like to do is this. In a few moments, I'd like to share with you what is in my opinion, and that's all that will, this will be. It's just my own personal opinion. I could be dead wrong. But what is in my opinion or a more Christ-like approach to borrowing, a more Christ-like paradigm to borrowing. But before I do that, let me kind of do a little explanation here. This session is what I call the leftover session because it, it frustrates me because I've got this much to say, but I've only got this much time to say it in. And by the way, just so everybody will know, I, whenever I go to a seminar, I like to know what's coming up. 
This first session is a little bit longer. It's going to go about an hour and 15 minutes. The second session, we'll take about a five minute break. The second session is about 55 minutes long. Now, had I been here on time tonight, we would all be out of here right about five minutes before nine. At this rate, we're probably going to be five or 10 minutes after nine getting out, but that's sort of what's in front of us here. But even though this session is a little bit longer than the second session, I still don't have time to say as much as I wish I could about debt issues. So the best I can do is give you kind of a hodgepodge, kind of like leftovers. Do you all have leftovers night at your house? Are we the only ones? Do you all do that? Most weeks I hate leftovers. <laughs> I mean, Bonnie knows I hate leftovers. Matter of fact, Bonnie doesn't even tell me from week to week which night the leftovers are going to be on because she knows if she tells me, I may not come home. I hate leftovers, but I can always tell. I come into the house, I walk into the kitchen, and Bond's in there in the kitchen, and the microwave is on, and that thing that kind of spins around inside there has about six or eight little things kind of floating around in it. And Bond's over here at the fridge pulling out stuff that we didn't like well enough to eat the first time, and she popped a lid on and said, I'm going to get them on leftovers night. Well, this is leftovers night. I don't have time to give everybody a nice, well-balanced meal, but I do have time to hit a few high points kind of a hodgepodge on things that deal with debt. And I would start right here. I would tell you that a great rule of thumb when it comes to borrowing is to understand that wise people do not borrow money on depreciating assets. Now, what's a depreciating asset? It's anything that's worth less tomorrow than it is today. I mean, things like your, your boats and, and appliances and furniture. And seriously, of all things in the world, going on a vacation with a credit card and paying after we've gone on it is one of the most counterproductive things we can do. And at the very top of the list here, somebody already said this, are our cars. <clears throat> Folks, at any given moment here in America, there are literally millions of us who are upside down on our car loans. Does everybody in here know what being upside down on a car loan is? Everybody? Anybody? Okay, what is it? Yeah, you owe more than it's worth. You owe $15,000 on a car that's only worth $12,000. I'll tell you, this is a good place for me to share that Jesus paradigm of borrowing. And again, <clears throat> this is just my opinion. But I would tell you that this is where Christians get into trouble. It's when we start to listen to what Madison Avenue, Detroit, and Wall Street tell us about money. And I, I'll stand here right now and confess to you that I spent a lot of my business life feeling differently about this. I have changed my thinking because I've seen some of the pain that this causes. When we start listening to the outside world for our advice, we're asking for trouble. And I would tell you this, I'm not sure that the sin of debt is necessarily the day that we miss the first payment. Maybe that's simply the day we realize that the toothpaste is already out of the tube. Maybe the real sin occurred months or even years earlier, when we allowed our lack of trust in God to provide for us, or our greed, or maybe our ego to get us to sign one of those loan agreements, during the term of which we're going to get upside down. And then what does happen if you lose your job, or you get real sick and you can't work for six months? Question is, how do we sell that car for 12000 and pay off the 15000 we owe? How does, how does the calculus of that work? Do you, do you see my point here? See, maybe what we Christians need to start doing is understanding that God has set up certain principles that do work. And if we trust God to provide and we don't allow ourselves to get ahead of ourselves, we're more likely than not not going to end up over here off the side of the road in some serious financial troubles. Now, of course, the question always comes up, 
well then what do you borrow money for? And, and listen, I'll tell you this, everybody in this room, we're all going to have a slightly different list here, but I think you can make a good case for borrowing money, <clears throat> excuse me, for borrowing money under some circumstances. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in home ownership. I think it's a good thing. Not for everybody, not at every time in our lives, but under the right circumstances, I believe in it. Those of you that take the boot camp, are, we're, we're going to be talking about how to buy homes the right way. I talk about it some in the book, but please listen to me. What we've been told for the last five or six, seven years is dead wrong. And as, as everybody in the audience knows, these home mortgage companies, along with, with Goodnight, with, with a lot of the big banks in, in, in New York, are now in a lot of trouble because of some lousy, dishonest, deceptive, greed-based lending practices. These no-interest no uh, loans that have been around, the, even the adjustable rate mortgages, the, what I call the liar's loans. These were the no documentation loans where you didn't even have to document your, your income. These were bad products and people are in a lot of trouble now because of it. But if you buy a home the right way, and again, we have some very conservative ratios that we teach, but if you buy a home the right way, I'm all in favor of mortgage loans. I'll tell you this, I think if you own a, a little business and you've got some accounts receivable and you know they're gonna be in in the next 30 days, but you've got some cash flow needs right now, you've got some hard assets that you can pledge, I see nothing wrong with borrowing a little money in a case like that. i tell you this, if one of my family members, members of that is needs some medical help that the insurance isn't going to pick up, I'm going to do anything that is legal and moral to take care of them, including borrowing money. Now again, tomorrow, like we talked about last night, if we get this Murphy Fund together like we should, that hopefully won't be a problem. But in the meantime, I would do it. And I wouldn't even go this far. I tell you this, in some rare cases, you can make a case for borrowing money on a used car. But I've got some things to say about car buying here that are probably not going to make very many friends for me. But let me just tell you what I believe. This is my opinion. You can accept it or reject it. But I've come to this over 25 years of thinking and doing and dealing with this stuff. I really believe that there are two things that an individual should do before he or she can truthfully say that he or she can afford to buy a new car. Now, sometimes people think, oh, Steve's against new cars. Folks, I'm not against new cars. I love new cars. I've been known to go into new car showrooms and sit down inside of those things and just suck in that new car smell. I love new cars, and I'm not against them. And anybody in here that wants to drive a new car, fine. I just want you to do it the right way. And I believe that there are two things that an individual needs to do before he or she can honestly say that he or she can afford one. Number one, we need to grab ourselves by the ears and pull ourselves in front of a mirror and have a little quick come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> this is when I look at me and I say, listen, Steve-O, you may want this new car, but Steve, you do not need this new car. What do you mean? Hey, folks, no one ever needs a new car. Why? It's because all new car purchases, by definition, are luxury purchases. I don't care whether you're talking about a Cadillac or a Kia. They're all luxury purchases. Well, Steve, what makes a new car a luxury purchase? One of the definitions of a luxury purchase is something that drops in value like a rock. You buy a $20,000 new car, the day you drive it off the lot, it's worth $17,000. A couple, a year and a half, two years later, it's going to be worth about ten dollars or $12,000 in many cases. Folks, that's not the way that people who get ahead get ahead. They drop in value like a rock. It's like taking a block of ice out here into the August sun and hitting that sucker with a blowtorch. It's out of here. You know, even the advertisers, have you noticed this? They, they admit this in their advertising now. Chevrolet trucks, they sing to you about it, like a rock. <laughs> Next time you hear that commercial, just think about what they're telling you. Listen, you know, if I reached in my pocket right now 
And I pulled out a $20,000 diamond ring. And I said, folks, I've got a diamond ring here I want to sell. I'll bet that there aren't too many of us that would rush down to the bank, borrow $20,000, and come in here and buy this thing and make payments on it. The reason is you'd say, Steve, that's all fine and good, but that's a luxury, and I don't need it. Well, folks, I'm telling you something. You buy that diamond ring from me right, over a period of time, it could go up in value. But this rock's going to, or this rock, this car is going to continue to head south forever. So we have got to tell ourselves the truth. It's a luxury. Is it wrong to own luxuries? Not necessarily, but it's wrong to lie to ourselves and not tell ourselves the truth about it. Second thing that we have to be able to do before you can buy a new car, and again, this is the tough one, and I'm not trying to make people mad because I don't have enough friends as it is. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you the truth. Before you can buy a new car and really be able to afford it, you have got to be able to walk into that new car showroom, select the car you want, reach into your pocket, pull out your checkbook, I'm not trying to be mean, and write a check for the entire amount. Leave the check with the salesman, drive the car off, and never, ever, ever, ever miss the money. Respectfully, I'm telling you, if you have to borrow money, you cannot afford a new car. Well, Steve, I don't know if I agree, but I'm just telling you this is the truth. Wise people understand that you do not get ahead by, de by borrowing money on depreciating assets. Well, I want to look at my position and, hey, listen, Robert Stanley in his books, has, have, has, he's proven this over and over again with studies. Wealthy people in America practically never buy new cars. They usually buy cars that have got some miles on it. And again, I'm not against buying a new car, but I am against buying it without telling yourself the truth and being able to pay for it. Because if you can't pay for it, you shouldn't be buying it. Because wise people do not borrow money on depreciating assets. That's a formula for failure. Now the question comes around, well then how do we deal with it? You know, the truth again is rich people don't have car loans. You say, you say well, that's because they're rich. No, 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 no. People get rich by doing the right sorts of things. Let me just share with you a four-step plan to get rid of your car loan forever, if you want to. And again, I know that I'm only talking to that one little small group that I referred to last night who are my best friends in here, the lunatic fringe. Those of you that are going to take all this stuff and go charging down the football field to run a touchdown. I know a few of you are going to probably do this, so it's worth sharing this. Here's what we need to do. Number one, <clears throat> let's forget the ego. Now look, I'm going to do something risky here. I'm going to turn my back and I'm going to admit to something. Then I'm going to turn back around and see how many of the rest of you put your hands up and are going to be truthful so you can go to heaven. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm just going to confess that part of the reason that I buy the cars that I buy is because I want people that I don't even know to think I look cool. How many of you will put your hands up on that one? Oh boy, this is a thin group. We've got a few of you that are going to go to heaven. Well, I tell you, for about two years, we're going to forget that monkey business, okay? Again, I'm not against having a nice looking car, but for a couple of years, we're going to forget showing off with our car. And we're going to understand that this is for one thing. It's transportation to get us from point A to point B. Number two, very quickly, we're going to save up two or three or four thousand dollars. Well, Steve, how am I going to do that? Hey, we're going to follow that three-point mantra that I talked about last night. Virtually anybody that will do that within three to five months can save two or three thousand dollars. Then we're going to go out and buy a cheap runabout car, okay? Everybody knows what I'm talking about. This thing is an egg beater with a steering wheel on it. <laughs> 
I mean, this is a basic ride. You make a sharp left turn, you lose your date, okay? <laughs> we're talking about a basic ride here. But this is what we're going to drive. Sometimes people get mad at me at this point. They say, Steve, you're just not being reasonable. You don't understand. I have to have a dependable car so I can go out of town sometimes. Hey, do what I do. I've got a dependable car. Actually, it's got 160 or 70,000 miles on it, but it's pretty dependable. But what I do, a lot of times when I'm going out of town, I'll put it in the garage and I'll go online and I'll start pecking around trying to find what kind of, whatever kind of deal I can find. I had to drive from Nashville down to, I think I was going down to, to Sunset. Down, where's Sunset? Is it in Abilene or Lubbock? Lubbock. Somewhere down there. Anyways, I had to go down there. And I was going to be gone for about five days, and I, I knew I was going to be putting about 2,000 miles on a car. I went around, pecked around, got a really good deal from budget, rented a brand new Ford Ranger pickup truck, drove that sucker all the way down to Texas, brought it back, put almost 2,000 miles on it, and paid budget less than $110. Now, folks, here's the deal. You can't drive your own car for that price. When we get serious about these things, we'll figure a way to make it work. We'll learn to go to our friends that own cars that are making payments and say, hey, how would you like to rent me your car for a few days and let me help you make this month's payment? There are all kinds of ways to do this if we get serious. Next thing we're going to do, we're going to go down here to the bank or the credit union and we're going to open up a paid-for wheels account. Well, what's that? A paid-for wheels account is nothing more than a savings account where we send ourselves a check every month instead of sending a check to GMAC or Ford Motor Credit or to the, to the bank or somebody else for a car that we're buying from them. How much am I going to send? Well, I told you yesterday that today the average car payment in America is almost $400 a month. If you can afford that, great. If you can't, come up with a number that you can live with. Uh, suppose you can afford $250 a month. Send yourself a check for $250 every month. In two years, you're going to have about, what is that going to be? That's going to be about $6,000 sitting there. Then you check to see what the value of the present car is that you've got. That car that you bought for $3,000 will probably still be worth $2,000. You can always check car values, by the way, by going to Kelly Blue Book on the, inter on the internet, kbb.com. And let's suppose that car is worth $2,000. You sell it for $2,000. You add the 2000 to the 6000 and then you buy an $8,000 car, and we gr gradually repeat this process and step up to the 12, the 15, the 20, the 25, the $30,000 car that we want. Now, folks, that's the way to do it. Listen, let me just show you how this would play out in real life for those of you that are really going to do this. Let's pretend that you've gotten serious about this. And let's pretend that you're down the road, maybe three or four years now, and you're ready to buy your second or your third car. And you've kind of scoped out the car dealers around town, you know, the, the lots around town, and you're seeing cars, say, for $15,000. That would be a step up from where you're at that would make you happy. Well, now we get to do something that a lot of us have never done before. First off, you need to check and see how much money you have. So you check your, your paid-for-wheels account, you check the value of your car, and let's just, let's just assume that you've got, say, $12,000 sitting there. Now here's what we get to do that some of us have never done before. We get to check the FISBOs. Does everybody in here know what a FISBO is? What is it? For sale by owner. This is when we start to look at the wheels and deals. We look at the classifieds. And we, it may take us a day, it may, take a, it may take a month. But boom, one night you look down there and there's a car just like the dealers want 15,000 for, but here's an owner wanting to sell it for 12,000. So you drive over there and you say, hey, could I drive your car? He says, sure. You drive it around the block. You get out and say, I love your car. I'd like to buy that car. I'll give you $10,000 for it. And he spits and sputters and says, dude, I want $12,000 for it. That's when you just put a real nice smile on your face. And you pull out your checkbook and you say something like, you know, if we do this correctly, 
you and me could get to be good friends in the next five minutes. You know, since you're not a dealer, you don't have as much overhead as they do, maybe you don't need quite as much markup. And also, since over 70% of people who buy cars make loans, and since you probably cannot help facilitate a loan being made for your car, you've got a fairly small group of potential buyers out here. I'm standing here right now with cash money in my hand. What's the very best deal you think you could give me? He looks at your checkbook, looks over there at his car for a minute, says, oh, I reckon I could let you have it for maybe 11000 and then all you do is say one word, sold. And you write him a check for 11000 of your 12000 you take the remaining 1000 throw it back in the bank, start on your next car today, and for $11,000, we go driving off in a car that at any other point in our life, we would have paid $15,000 plus interest for. Now, folks, that's the way that people who get ahead get ahead. And there are spiritual implications here. It has to do with stewardship. And this is something that we Americans in our consumer-oriented society forget about. But the truth is, we need to understand that every resource God brings into our lives, whether that's brains or money or time or anything else, really belongs to God. We talked about this last night. We need to redeem whatever God gives us as wisely as we know how to. You've all seen those TV commercials where they always say, but wait, there's more. Like they've shown us 10 Ginzu knives, and then they say, but wait, here's one that'll slice throats or something. Well, let, let me do one of those, but wait, there's more commercials here. And by the way, if you weren't here last night, don't get mad at me. I'm not trying to appeal to anybody's greed. I'm just having a little fun here. But wait, there's more. Here's how to become a millionaire. Pretend that you've got a teenager right now that will listen to you, okay? And you grab that teenager by the ears and yank him in front of you and say, Tino, I love you. You've got that after-school job. You're making, what, three, dollars $400 a month? I think that's fabulous. But I'm going to recommend that for about the next 20 months, we take $100 every month out of that money and put it into a bank account in your name. In 20 months, you're going to have about $2,000 sitting there. By that point, you'll be about 18 years old. Then we're going to open up an individual retirement account in your name. And we're going to put that $2,000 into a couple of good stock mutual funds. Then we are going to forget about them. Now, that young person is going to be working quite a few more years. And by the way, let's just assume that over the next several decades, that mutual fund has a 12% annual return. Is there any guarantee of that? None whatsoever. But there are some good mutual funds that over the last 100 years have averaged 10, 11, 12, 13. Let's just pretend, for the fun of this argument, that, that this, thing, this thing returns 12% a year on average, okay? That young person's going to be working longer than we have because they're going to be supporting us and because they're going to be healthier. They'll probably retire in their early 70s. Now, by that time, Mom, Dad, you will be nothing more than a distant memory. You will have long ago assumed room temperature. <laughs> but your 72-year-old youngster will be coming out to the graveyard on their walker, blowing kisses at your headstone saying, thank you, Mama, thank you, Daddy. You turned me into a millionaire. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the way we need to teach, motivate, encourage, focus, mentor our kids so they don't go through some of the grief that a lot of us have gone through. We really do need to communicate this. And listen, let me just say this. I hope somebody in here will have some passion about this and will take the boot camp and dumb down three or four of those lessons and really, really present it to the kids in a way that they can understand. Help them catch this vision because it means a lot. Now that's all stuff for the beautiful by and by. We're going to be talking about that in the next hour. Right now we're deal still dealing with a nasty now and now of debt. And the bottom line here is simple. 
As, as God's kids, we need to be people who keep our word. The Bible talks about this. The Bible says that wicked people are the ones who borrow and don't pay back. Jesus said our yes should be yes, our no should be no, because anything past that is of evil. And why is this? It's because a good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. So, if right now you're struggling with some debt, let me make six suggestions, some of which you might find to be helpful here. Number one, before you think about accepting a bankruptcy approach, make whatever decision you make with both prayer and the very best counsel that you can get. Um, the truth of the matter is, we might be able to convince some creditor that we can't pay him back. God, though, knows the truth, and we can't fool God. The Bible talks about this. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because the bottom line is real simple. One day, every single one of us in this room, Steve Diggs, my wife, my children, every one of us in this room are going to have to stand before God completely alone and give an account for what we've done in the flesh. And I'm telling you, folks, we live in a society today that collectively sort of shrugs its shoulders at debt and at obligations and at, at people who have given their promise and made, their, you know, made, made commitments and says, hey, it's okay if you don't keep them. And I'm telling you, God doesn't see things that way. We need to be serious when we make commitments. It's important. Number two, when we're in debt, we need to be truthful. They say the first casualty of war is the truth. I think the first casualty of debt for many people is the truth. Studies show that over 30% of married people lie to each other on a regular basis about money. When we're in debt, when we're in financial trouble, we need to be upfront, we need to be truthful. Number three, we need to exhaust every alternative before we even think about asking anybody to write that debt down. What does that mean? That means that we're going to follow this three-point mantra that I talked to you all so much about last night. It means that we're going to work those second and third jobs and fill up as many of the 168 hours that we have this week as we possibly can trying to earn some money. We do not have time to be laying around watching TV. Listen, I said this last night, but laying on the couch watching reruns of Andy Griffith eating bonbons doesn't fix the problem. We've got to get up, get out, and get some things going here. And it means we don't have time or money to be going on vacation. Whew. Steve, that sounds harsh. Hey, listen, I'm not trying to be harsh. But brothers and sisters, we're not talking about our money anymore. We're talking about someone else's money that we haven't paid back. And I'm telling you, for a lot of us, the most peace-giving, relaxing thing we can do isn't to go out of town on vacation. It's to get serious and get this debt out of our lives. It changes things for the better. We're going to cut expenses. We're going to sell stuff as fast as we can. Listen, let me tell you real quickly about two of my heroes, and some of you, especially Stan and Nell over here, know these people real well. Junior and Peggy Grimes are two of my real heroes. Junior's one of our elders at Antioch. He's been an elder ever since the Bible was written. He's been there. <laughs> you know, those of you that know him, don't go out and tell him I said that. <laughs> I love Junior. Junior is one of the most godly human beings I've ever known. Some years ago, back when Junior and Peggy were in their 50s, I think they were 56 or 8 years old, something in that range, they started looking at their retirement plan, and they realized that based on the tra trajectory that they were on, they weren't going to have enough money to retire at 65. And by the way, I'm telling this story with Junior and Peggy's permission. So, they started looking around for their, for their options, you know, what, what they could do. They found a florist shop that was for sale near the church building. And they thought, you know, we've got this little rental house that we've rented out for years. We could sell the rental house, buy the florist shop. Peggy can run the business. Junior will help as much as possible. We'll make an income from the company. And then when we get ready to retire, we can sell it and make an income from the sale of the business. Pretty good plan. And at first, everything seemed to be going fine. But sometime into this, 
The two of them began looking at things, realized there were some problems. Long story short, they hired an auditor. Auditor came in, went through everything, got back with him and said, Peg, Junior, I don't know if you misunderstood some stuff or were not told some stuff, but as of this very moment, this company is in the hole to the tune of about $100,000. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but to me, that's a lot of money. Now, the auditor, the advisor, was encouraging them to try to write their debt down. In other words, go back to the vendors, try to get the vendors to take less money. Junior reasoned this way. He thought, you know, I can't do that. It's not the vendor's fault. It's my fault that, I, that I'm in this mess. And the way Peggy and Junior looked at it was this. Junior thought, you know, I've worked at the Ford Glass plant here in Nashville for over 30 years. Who says I have to retire at 65? They'll let me work into my 70s if I have to. And I can get double and triple overtime. And Peggy, nuts, she can go back and work at the post office. This couple burrowed in, zeroed in on this debt. They actually sold the home that they brought their two boys up in, moved into a little two-bedroom apartment to pay this debt down. But I am extremely thankful to be able to tell you that a while back, Junior stuck his head in my office one morning at the church building. He said, Steve, congratulate me. I said, what's up? He said, just turned 65. Today, Peggy and Junior are both in retirement. Peggy's not having to work at all. Junior is still doing some part-time work. But the really cool news is this. They held up the torch for Jesus. They honored that debt. They paid off every penny of that $100,000. Something else really neat, God gave them back a home. But folks, we have got to make up our minds to do it God's way. Number four, when we're in debt, be available. I tell people everywhere I go, don't you ever run from a creditor unless he's got a gun. If he's got a gun, then it's okay to run. But otherwise, we need to face him. You know, Larry Burkett used to say that it's best for debtors to run to creditors, not away from them. Because if you don't communicate, like my friend Mike Root likes to say, they're going to speculate. And we need to be upfront. We need to talk to people. We don't need to run from them when we're in trouble. Number five, let's make a personal commitment to eventually pay what we owe. Now listen, I understand that if you happen to already be in a bankruptcy situation, there may be some legal considerations as to who, if, where, how you can pay. But the bottom line is simply this. Folks, as God's kids, we need to determine to do everything we can do reasonably to pay off the debts. This means we're going to change our lifestyle. We're going to make tough choices. We're going, to, we're going to do what we have to do because we're trying to hold up a torch here. We're trying to save our own good name, but much more importantly, we're trying to save the good name of Jesus that we as Christians wear. This is serious stuff. And lastly, number six, let's remember that God's close and he will get us through. This passage has taken a lot of people through a lot of deep water. No temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man, but praise God, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with that temptation, we'll also make a way of escape. Now listen, folks, I don't know any way to talk about debt without also talking about credit cards. Credit cards have been the bane of existence for millions of Americans. At the time of their bankruptcy, many families owe as much as one and a half times their annual income in the form of short-term high-interest rate credit card debt. And folks, there are some of you in this room right now I do not know who you are, but I know for a fact in a group this size, some of you have had phone calls from credit card companies within the last week. You know that this can be some of the most painful stuff out there. Let me give you four reasons why, why credit cards are dangerous. First reason credit cards are dangerous is because these suckers are so easy to get. Last year, there were over 5 billion credit card mailers sent out. I think I personally got about half of them. Anybody in here get the other half? 
Yeah, I mean, every time you come home, there's a stack of those things, right? I tell you what, if that's not bad enough, what's even worse is the way they're messing around with our kids. And I'm just going to tell you, I have a real issue with these colleges, including Christian colleges, that let these credit card outfits come on campus and pop up their little card tables and, and give away these incredibly valuable $3 gifts. You know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and frisbees, right? And all one of our kids has to do to get one of those cool gifts is to sell their financial soul and take on a credit card. And listen, if you have any influence over any college that's doing this kind of thing, you need to get in their face about it. Because, because this is working at cross purposes with what parents need to be doing with their kids. The truth of the matter is this, there's a reason why these credit card companies like the colleges. It's because of a little thing called affinity marketing. They have learned that kids have an affinity or almost a love for that first credit card and sometimes they'll hold it for 10 or 20 years while with subsequent cards they get them and throw them away. So it's wise from their perspective to be the very first one in your kids pockets. I'll tell you what, if that's not bad enough, let me show you something that's even worse if I've got it here. Yeah, here is the mailer that came to my home to my then 16 year old daughter, Emily. This came from the good folks at Citibank. And buddy, this thing is well done. It's got her little name printed on here in about 10 places. Well done piece of propaganda. And if that's not bad enough, here's the one that came a couple of weeks later to our then 13-year-old daughter, Mary. Now, Mary is now 18. Emily is now uh, 22. They still haven't seen these. <laughs> Moms and dads, I don't care what it says. Anything comes in my house is my property. I don't want my kids messing with them. And <laughs> I'm just telling you, listen, if that's not bad enough, some, there are stories now coming out about some of these credit card companies in third world, that, go, that are going into third world nations where the credit protection laws are not as good as they are in the states. And when people get behind on their payments, some of the collectors are now going out trying to get people to sell body parts to pay their monthly credit card bills. These are not the warm, soft, fuzzy, cuddly, priceless people that we hear of on TV. They may be everywhere you want to be, but they don't care if you're debt free, and you need to know that. Number two, credit cards are dangerous because these things are so easy to use and to abuse. You know, I can remember back when you get a credit card and you kind of put the thing away. You might use it to buy gas, but who would have ever thunk that you could buy the car with it or pay college tuition with it? Or better yet, why don't we all go down to the grocery store down here to Kroger tonight when we get done and let's buy this week's groceries on our credit card and pay for them over the next 30 years. And you know what the fastest moving thing in religious circles is today? Now, I don't know of any churches of Christ doing this yet, but do you know what is going on in, in churches all over this country? Every Sunday morning, lots of churches are zapping credit cards for contributions. It's coming. Watch out. I hope it's not coming here ever. Number three, people simply don't understand how credit cards work. They don't understand how the penalties and the interest and all this junk gets computed. Listen, next time you're looking at a credit card offering and you flip it over and you start to read that fine print, that's all fine and good, but don't confuse that with the contract. That keeps referring back to addendum this, addendum that. Send away for the contract. Today, the average uh, credit card contract is now over 30 pages long. There was a Harvard Law School class. One of the kids got one of these things recently. They sat down and spent most of an entire class session taking one of these things that one of them gotten in the mail, trying to understand it. They couldn't figure it out. Folks, these things are complicated. They're hard to understand. They're getting tougher and tougher all the time. I was at the bank a while back. They had this 3.9% visa thing going. So I took the brochure, took it home, flipped it over, started reading the fine print. I had to get help, actually. I had to read it twice to figure this thing out. 
But sure enough, you do get 3.9, unless on a couple of occasions you're like a day late, and then that friendly little 3.9 rate pops up to about 20%. A lot of your credit cards, by the way, today, if you are late on a utility payment, they can jack your rate up as much as 20 to 30 points. Read the fine print and understand it before you get into one of these things. Fourth reason credit cards are dangerous is because the interest rates on these things are just simply so high. You remember ja uh, Joe, uh, Joe Friday on, on Dragnet, Just the Facts, ma'am? Let me give you just the facts on credit cards. Today, families that have credit cards are now carrying an average balance of about $12,000, according to one study. <clears throat> we have almost a trillion dollars outstanding on these things nationwide, over $850 billion. A lot of people in America are spending up to 20% of their income paying these things off. In many of the most recent years, we've had about a million and a half bankruptcies per year. That means, listen carefully, that means that in many of the most recent years, we have had more bankruptcies in this country than we've had college graduates. Think about that. More bankruptcy decrees than college degrees. This is serious stuff. Listen, our goal, folks, every single one of us, should aspire to be a credit card deadbeat. <laughs> Sounds like a weird thing to tell a bunch of Christians, doesn't it? Does anybody in here know what a credit card deadbeat is in the parlance of the credit card industry? What is it, bro? That's right. They call us credit card deadbeats if we pay the whole thing off every month. If you do that, they don't like you very much because you're only making them a little bit of money. What they really want you to do is make that minimum payment and let the rest of it flop over. But that's what kills us. Stephen Broback with the Consumer Fed says this. He says the low minimum payment, which barely covers interest obligations, convinces many borrowers that they're okay as long as they meet that minimum payment obligation. But folks, that is not true. Listen carefully, please, to this. The minimum payment obligation is, is, is junk, and that ruins people. Let me just show you how this thing works. Pretend that you've got a credit card right now. Pretend that you owe $4,000. That's only about a half or a third the national average, okay? You owe $4,000, and you've decided that you're going to make the minimum payment, okay? By the way, what is the minimum payment on a $4,000 credit card debt? Help me out. Say, say how much? $15. Anybody else got a number? Help me out. 30? 40? I'm taking bids up here. You see, you guys are probably all right. The point is this, they're all over the board. Some credit cards were charging as little as one half percent per month. Now the government is pushing these companies to get those numbers up higher so people can sometime, some way get out of debt. But the highest that I've seen any credit card requiring, the highest that I've seen yet, is one that's requiring 2.5% paid out every month. So let's pretend that this one requires 2.5%. That's going to get it paid off faster than it would if it were less. How much is 2.5% of $4,000? $100. Yeah. So we sent them $100, and you're thinking, you know, I know that's not a lot of money, but I'm not really sure if that Gomer Pyle lookalike that came up from Antioch <laughs> knows what he's talking about. I don't think it's going to take 20 or 30 or 40 years to pay this off. But what we're forgetting about is another little thing here called interest. Now let's just pretend that this card has an 18% rate. That's fairly typical. 18% means that we're paying 1.5% per month. So what is 1.5% of, of $4,000? $60. So do you see what's happened? This month, we've sent our friends at the credit card company $100, but 60 of that went to pay interest. So do you see what the numbers are? This month on our $4,000 debt, we've paid a grand total of $40.
and the other $3,960 has just flopped over at 18% a year. Done this way, according to bank rate, it's going to take over 24 years to pay off our $4,000 debt. And by the way, if you have a card that has the more common 2% rate that's required, do you think if you were only paying 2% a month instead of 2.5% that it would make a lot of difference in how long it takes to pay it off? Yeah, it would. You'd be paying it out for over 40 years on that $4,000. Folks, this is why we have to get smart. We have to learn what's going on. If we don't, the church is in desperate trouble. Forget outside culture. The church is in bondage. And we're not able to do things because of bondage like this. This is why we have to wake up to this stuff. Um, let me give you four tips on how to use a credit card and stay out of debt. Sometimes this surprises people because they're all ready for me to tell them that they can't have a credit card. You can do anything you want to do. You're grown-ups, and anything you choose to do is, is, is up to you. But I am not part of the school that tells people that credit cards are necessarily wrong. However, I will tell you they can be big trouble. And there are four things that if we will do them, they will help us stay out of trouble. Number one, most of us need to have only one card account. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have two cards. Mom and Dad may each one want a piece of plastic. But one account per family, in most cases, is best. Why? It's because the more cards we have, the more spending, the more confusion, and the more of an avalanche of bills we're going to have at the end of the month. One card for most families. Number two, we need to commit to pay every single penny every single month. This is by far the most important of the four points, by the way. This is when we have got to get serious about it. And I'm telling you, if you look down and you notice that you're carrying a balance after three or four or five months, then you probably need to have one of those 12-step meetings with yourself. You get in front of a mirror and say, Hi, I'm Steve, and I'm a spendaholic. <laughs> and remember the nature of addiction is what? Denial? Well, I'm not really a spendaholic. This is just the way I handle and manage my money. I'm not an alcoholic. I just get drunk on the weekends. Hey, if we are spending money we don't have, one of two things is true. We're either a thief or we're addicted. One of two things. And we shouldn't be in either one of those situations. So if we're carrying credit card debt, that means we have to stop carrying credit cards. This is harsh. I'm not trying to be, but I'm telling you the truth. Those credit cards are the pathway back into the pain. This is when we do get rid of all the credit cards. And remember, if you're an alcoholic and you want to quit drinking, what does that mean? Do you, do you quit drinking or not? What do you do? You stop drinking, right? And you don't leave one bottle of vodka up on top of the fridge just in case you have an emergency. <laughs> You've got to get rid of all the liquor. If you're a spendaholic, we've got to get rid of all the credit cards. <laughs> okay, number three, let's pre-plan how we're going to use these cards. This is when mom and daddy need to sit down and hold hands and say, sweetheart, what can we do with the cards? Can we buy gas? Okay, this, yes, no, 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 yes, no, yes, 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 no. And then when we come down to our list of stuff that we can do with this credit card, listen to me, ladies, don't ever dishonor your husband. If you've made a commitment, don't you ever get out with a bunch of shopaholic friends and go to the mall and say, I don't care what I said, we're just going to have fun today. That is not the right way to do. That is dishonoring to your husband. And men, listen to me. Here's something that Jesus would never say. Jesus would never say something like, well, I'm the head of this house, since my money, I'm going to do what I want to do with it. That is not Jesus' talk. Listen, when you have made a commitment to your love partner for life, honor it. Don't break your word. I mean, if you get somewhere where you feel like you've just got to use the card for something that's not on the list, call home. Honey, I'm in jail tonight. Can I please use the card? I mean, there may be an exception here and there, but generally we're going to do exactly what we've said. And number four, Let's not let these cards become a source of pride and showiness. You know, one of the real coups 
in the credit card marketing industry came several decades ago when somebody dreamed up the idea of the gold card. Can you remember when you got your first gold card? I can still remember mine. I remember back in the 1970s, I got my first gold card. I thought I was so cool. I mean, I thought I was like one of about five people in America that had this thing. I mean, I didn't know that every whopper flopper down at the Burger King already had two. I thought I was really cool. And I can remember, honestly, I can remember taking people out to eat and sitting there and paying for everybody at the table so they could all see that I had a gold card. Idiot, you don't get cards to show off with. You get them for two reasons, to pay bills, to keep records. And that is that is that. Let's talk real quickly a little bit about debit cards. Everybody knows what a debit card is? They may have a it may have a, a MasterCard or a Visa logo on it, but it's not a credit card. It debits or takes money out of your account at the bank as you use it. I like debit cards okay, but I am not one of these people out here waving a flag for them saying that they're the answer to everything because they're not. Let me give you two or three things to think about with, credit, with debit cards that the people who promote them sometimes seem to forget to mention to us. Number one, they are not accepted everywhere credit cards are. They just aren't. And if you travel a lot, if you rent cars a lot, you need to know this. There are a lot of places that will accept a debit card, but the conditions are pretty stringent. Number two, some experts warn that the liabilities with debit cards can be greater, financially speaking, than with a credit card. I mean, if you've got a credit card and somebody steals it and zaps $2,000 of charges up on it, usually what is your financial liability going to be limited to? How much? $50 usually. But if somebody steals your debit card, zaps $2,000 out of your account, theoretically, how much could you be on the line for? The whole $2,000. This is why we need to sit down and read our bank's policy. Don't go and talk to some $10 an hour teller. You need to read their policy. Most banks these days are protecting debit customers on anything over $50 too. But the next question to ask your bank is, if this were to happen to me, how long would it take for you to put the money back in my account? There are people out there who have had horror stories about this. They'll have something like this happen and their banks will mess around with it for weeks or months. And if this is the money you're living off of, you could be in a real rough row of stumps for a while until they get the money back in there. And number three, debit cards have got the same exact problem that credit cards do. Anytime we're spending with plastic, there is not enough pain. I'm just telling you, you go down here to Applebee's and you buy dinner and they bring you a bill for $20? and you have to shell out real money, you know that beautiful portrait of Andrew Jackson, you have to pull that out of your billfold and leave it on the table, that hurts. But you know, anytime we're using plastic, whether it's a debit card or a credit card, you kind of get that wrist action thing going, it's kind of halfway fun to do this. People who use credit cards, on average, are gonna spend 12 to 18% more. So if you're gonna use credit, just avoid the urge to splurge. Listen, let me just share with you a quick thought about rebuilding our credit. Number one, this is no time to give up hope. And two, there are some productive things to get from where we are to where we want to be. Now, sometimes people hear me say this. They say, Steve, I don't get it. On the one hand, you're over here telling me not to be out here borrowing a lot of money. But over here, on the other hand, you're telling me how to improve my credit. What's the deal here? Well, listen, there are two reasons why Christians should have good credit scores. Number one is a very practical reason. Everybody and his brother today is pulling your credit ticket. Next time you apply for a job, they're probably going to pull your credit. Your insurance companies, homeowners and car insurance companies in particular, pull credit tickets to determine your, 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 your pricing in many cases. The United States military, at more and more basis, are pulling credit tickets to determine clearance levels. For practical reasons, we need to have good credit. And listen, as a Christian, let me just say this. Part, as Christians, we should be people with good character. And 
our credit score to some degree reflects our character. So as Christians, we need to do what we can to have a reasonably good credit score. Let me give you a quick seven-step do-it-yourself credit repair kit. Now these are just some things that you might want to think about doing if in the past you've had some credit troubles. But now you've got everything paid off, but you're still dealing with that debris that sort of keeps coming sometimes for months or even years later. Number one thing I'd say is this, get that budget, that personal financial freedom plan, that written budget together fast. That is the lumberjack that's going to get us out of the middle of these woods. We have got to have a written budget. If you simply cannot do one by yourself, get help, but get on with it. You've got to have that. Number three, we need to check and make sure that our credit reports are accurate. That means we're going to check with all three of the clearinghouses, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. I've got all their information in the book, but you don't need my book. You can just go online to these places, or if you want, go to one website. Let me tell you what that is. It's annual report, I'm sorry, annual credit report com. Don't go to those gimmick sites you see advertised on TV. Annualcreditreport.com. Does everybody know that you're allowed to have one free credit pull from each one of these three companies now? You can have one per year from each company. I would encourage you not to get them all three at one time. Spread them out about three or four months apart. That way if somebody's mucking around with your credit, you're more likely to find out about it than you are if you wait a year in between. Just something to think about. Number four, if you see something inaccurate on your credit report, you need to challenge it immediately. The Fair Credit Reporting Act essentially says this. It says, look, if there's something wrong on the credit report, you need to contact the reporting agency. You tell them it's wrong. They then have, in most cases, 30 days to do one of two things. Either go back to the creditor and the creditor revalidates it and puts it back on. If they do that, then you have to deal with the creditor or they have to take it off completely. Now, Again, my recommendation is this. If you have something like this on your credit report, do the hard work that it takes on the phone to get through to a living human being. It's very hard to do that these days, but it's best if you can. At the very least, go through the system, put all the names, information, everything that they want in there. But the minute you get off the phone, that's when you send a letter, snail mail, that outlines everything. And in the book, we do have a really good form letter that I encourage you to use. This is where you remind them of all the details. You remind them that you know the law. You have now turned the clock on. They've got 30 days. And be sure you send the letter with a return receipt request on it because these people have got very short memories sometimes. Number five, we need to ask our creditors for their help and cooperation. If the creditor insists on keeping it on the report, then we have to go to the creditor. If this is somebody that you're dealing with and you're paying them okay now, a lot of times they'll improve what they have to say about you. If they simply refuse to do that, then all you can do is let time take its course. Eventually this will fall off your report. Number six, let's add positive histories to our file. This is when we make sure that the people we're paying are reporting. I ran into a guy not long ago who, whose, whose mortgage company wasn't even reporting his payments. You need to check on this. And number seven, add accuracy to your file. Be sure that everything they've got about you is correct. The way they spell your name, your, your address, um, uh, you know, all the stuff they've got in there about you. And by the way, if you happen to see a weird address on your report, that's the time to ring some fire bells because that could be an indication that there's already somebody out there messing around with your credit who set up a dummy account or two and you're just a few months away from hearing about it. So it's good to do that. Listen, we live in a culture, like I said, that sort of shrugs its shoulders and says, hey, if you've got debt problems, no big deal. All you need to do is get one of these friendly little bill consolidation loans. Everybody knows what a BCL is? It's when you look over here at all six of the credit cards and the 
the, the school loans and the, and, the, and the car bills, and you say, wow, I've got $70,000. And you yank it all up, and you run over here to your friendly bill consolidator. What's your first name? Al. Al. I come over here to Al, the, the friendly bill consolidator, and I say, Al, could I please have $70,000? And Al writes me a check for $70,000. I pay these folks off, and I start to pay Al back. Now, that sounds pretty good. But folks, the trouble with BCLs is they're a little bit like playing with a beautiful candle in a room full of dynamite. They can blow us to smithereens because they fix, they treat symptoms, they do not fix the problems. You see, what happens most of the time, people get into trouble with these things. Up to 80% of people who do this, by the way, within a two-year period of time, still owe Al the Consolidator money, but they've now run their credit cards right back up. That's why I don't like, uh, that's why I don't like bill consolidation loans. I know that people don't listen to me on this. So if you're determined to get one, let me give you at least a quick two-step to-do list before you get it. Number one, determine to borrow as little as possible. What a lot of times people do, they'll look at all these debts, these credit cards and car loans and all, and they'll say, wow, I've got $70,000. They'll come over here to Al and they'll say, Al, could I please, please, please have $70,000? Now, Al knows who he has here. He has a spendaholic. So Al leans back in his chair and says, no problem, Steve. I'll be glad to give you 70000 But Steve, I'll bet there are some things that around the house maybe that you need to be doing. Instead of 70000 why don't you let me just write this thing, say, for about 80000 And after all, I'm a spendaholic. And I'm looking at Al going, yeah, 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 yeah. And I go home that night $10,000 deeper in debt than I was when I came in. Now, that's what a lot of people do. What we should do, we should look at our debts and say, yeah, I've got a bunch of credit cards, but none of them are more than five or $6,000. And if I would get lean, mean, mad, and focused, I could murder those things in about two to four years. I put them into a bill consolidation loan, I'll forget about them. And my school loan, nuts, he can't match that. So instead of 70000 I might borrow fifteen or 20000 But the key is as little as possible for as low as possible for as short as possible. And number two, let's really make sure that this new loan helps our situation. Most bill consolidation loans are made when people are in panic mode. The husband and the wife are fighting. They're sitting up at night worrying. The collectors are calling. Stress is everywhere. And this looks like an easy way out. Listen, before we sign this bill consolidation loan contract, and by the way, this is what's gotten a lot of us into trouble already, we sign contracts. We lock radar whenever they put an X on the paper, and we start signing. Stop doing that. Take the contract home. Read it. Make sure that the provisions really are going to help the situation, that the, that the interest rates are lower. Everything is right. And if it isn't going to help you, don't sign it. And listen, one other thing as a Christian that you might think about doing before you sign that, you might think about getting on your knees and just telling God that you're sorry. And saying, God, I have messed up. I'm sorry. I promise that I'm never going to do this one again. And you know how the Bible talks about doing the deeds of repentance? You know, as we stand up, maybe before we sign that contract, we ought to reach into our pocket and pull out all the credit cards and get rid of them. I would tell you this. No one should ever have a bill consolidation loan and a credit card at the same time. Wow, Steve, that sounds mean. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm telling you, those credit cards are the pathway back to the pain. We've got to understand how serious this is. Listen, we're going to wrap this, this session up, but let me just say this as we do. As I've gotten older and uglier, <laughs> I've gotten more and more convinced that about 90% of getting things right, 
boils down to Steve Diggs at some point in time simply getting sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired and saying, I'm not going to do it this way anymore. And I'm going to get on the right side of the line. I'm going to draw that bead on the wall that I was talking about. And I'm going to start doing things God's way. Back several years ago, my mother called me. Mom, mom lived in Oak Ridge. My mother died uh, on February the 15th of 2004. But, and this was, about, this was about 10 years ago. But back in her heyday, my mother was the winningest person that I think I've ever known. As a kid, my mama would go to a church potluck and they'd say, well, we're going to give away the centerpiece up here. Somebody has a sticker underneath her chair. Mama didn't even have to look. She just reached down there and said, I've got it. You know, she just won everything. She, she, I can remember she winning stuff from the radio station when I was a kid. Uh, she was the kind of gal that could go to the shopping center and wherever she wanted to go, the minute she'd get in front of that store, somebody would pull out and give her the best spot. It was unbelievable. Anyway, she called me from Oak Ridge one day and she said, Steve, I want something. I said, great, Mom, what'd you win? She said, well, Saturday I went into the shoe store and I put my name in the box. I'm the winner. What'd you get, a pair of shoes? No. It turned out that this had been a regional contest going on all over East Tennessee for weeks. My mama comes bopping in there on the last day of the contest, late in the afternoon, drops her name in the box, and she is the grand prize winner of an all-expense-paid trip for two to go out to Hollywood to watch the Emmy Awards. Go figure. <laughs> she said, Steve, I don't feel like going. You think you and Bonnie would like to go instead? Woo! I was so glad she was my mama that day. <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. I'm telling you, we headed for Beverly Hills, Bonnie and I did, faster than the Clampets. We were out there, you know. And we got out there, we had this Cadillac, we were going to Beverly Hills, going to Bel Air. Came the night of the Emmy Awards. And folks, it's exactly like you see on TV. There's like this red carpet that comes up off the road, and all around are hundreds of people. Everybody you've ever seen on TV, they're all there. I mean, every one of them. And way back over here on the other side of the road, this is where the police are. And they got their arms locked, the barricades are up, the paparazzi shooting pictures, and behind them are all the hundreds of fans yelling and screaming and carrying on. <laughs> but on this night, Bonnie and me, we got to get out on this side of the road. We got to walk up the red carpet. Hey, Jay, how you doing, bud? Dave, how's it going, old man? Just having a big old time. Until about the time we walked into the auditorium. For some reason, I sort of turned around and looked back. And I saw something that changed everything. Back here behind the police officers, uh, behind the photographers, the fans, I don't know what it was. It may have been a brick planter that was maybe about the height of this step on the stage. And it was maybe 30 feet long. There were probably a half a dozen very lonely people spread out holding a big, long banner that said something to the effect, Hollywood is breaking the heart of Jesus. Whew. I'm the guy who doesn't think that we Christians need to be sitting around with our kids watching these idiot sitcoms that are on TV where God's name's being laughed at, people that aren't married or living together, homosexuality's being accepted and, 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 and you know, raised as the standard of life. Here I am believing all that stuff on the high night of Hollywood here I go walking in to congratulate the very people that make it. And boom, it was just like a blink. We realized, man, we're on the wrong side of the line here. These, these are not our folk. Our people, they're the ones way, way back over there. Well, by this time, we're already inside. Things going on in the air. What do you do? Someone came up to us and said, you remember that you're invited to the reception when we go off the air? Bonnie and I said, we'll be there. We'll be there. When we went off air, 
they took us into a room that was probably not, not as big as this section of the auditorium right over here. And there were probably three or 400 people in this room. Everybody you've ever seen on TV, everybody, it seemed like. God that night gave Bonnie and me the courage. He gave us the words. He gave us the opportunity to get on the right side of the line. And we took it. And we spent that evening talking to people, people that you would know about Jesus Christ, about what the media could do for this nation. These were not adversarial conversations. They were warm. They were friendly. But we had to decide whose kids we were, get on the right side of the line, and get our feet on the red iron. You know, in the building industry, they tell these guys when they go up in the high-rises, they say, listen, when you're up there, don't lean against the wind. There are stories told of guys that will be 20 floors above the pavement. They're out on a little narrow red iron beam, and they're out there working. The day's progressing, and they get tired, and the wind starts to blow sometimes, and they barely even notice it. But they start to lean against that wind for support. And there are stories told of times when the wind has stopped suddenly, and these guys have gone right over the side. See, you've got to get your feet on the red iron of Jesus, get on the right side of the line, and start doing it his way. But listen, in our next session, we're going to talk about exactly how to do that. I want to share with you the things that, that, that make money work. I want to talk to you a little bit about the six secrets of the world's great investors. I want to talk to you a little bit about God's way of investing. And also, for those of us in this room, more than half of us own mutual funds, either directly or in retirement accounts. Most people are unclear about these. They're kind of queasy about them. I'm going to bring some clarity to that and explain a lot about those in our next session. So why don't we do this? We're, we're going to take about a five-minute break. Everybody can get up, stretch your legs, go to the potties, get some water, and we'll uh, be back in here real quickly in about five minutes to do the last session.